I think I'm helping the survival of the Jewish people just as much as someone living in Israel. Because neither of us knows, God forbid, the next thing that's going to happen to us, right? And I think that the work of them by do is very important, even if someone in Israel, someone's where else, me not. So I would just hope someone would try to understand me where I'm coming from as much as I'm trying to do the same. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In my last episode, episode 155, I spoke with Rabbi Mark Wilds of the Manhattan Jewish Experience about whether diaspora Jews have enough engagement with Israel, whether they care enough about Israel, and if they have the moral right to actively try to affect Israeli policies. We talked about whether diaspora communities have independent integrity, or if they should instead be seen as way stations on the way to encouraging all Jews to move to Israel. We addressed other issues too, like how to increase the care that non-Israeli Jews have for Israel, whether familiarity with Israel has created a type of indifference, and more. As I think I made clear, Rabbi Wilds and I were largely in agreement about most of the issues that we discussed. Responses to this episode were mixed, to say the least. Some people agreed wholeheartedly and didn't see anything controversial in what we suggested. Some suggested that we actually didn't go far enough in what we said. Others felt that we were condescending, short-sighted, and misguided. What was fascinating to me was that, at least regarding most of the responses that I heard and read, few people fell in the middle. They generally seemed either to agree unequivocally or to disagree completely. One of the many comments came from Maharat Ruth Friedman. She concluded her comment by asking, do you plan to interview a diaspora Jew who shares alternate views and can shed light on how the American Jewish community viewed the tragedies in Israel in the past two weeks? There's a lot to say on these questions, and I think that folks would appreciate proper representation and not being talked about by others. To that end, I invited Maharat Friedman to join me today to present a very different viewpoint from that espoused by Rabbi Wilds and me last week. Before we began our conversation, I suggested that the best way to facilitate a true dialogue would be for her to feel free to ask me questions, just as I was asking her about her opinions. For that reason, this episode is a little bit different from most others, and I ended up speaking more and offering more of my own personal perspective than I'm normally inclined to do. Our conversation began by talking about a different way for religious Jews who live outside of Israel to view Israel and events in Israel. But almost inevitably, we talked about Israeli politics and government, the Palestinian issue, and the meaning of religious Zionism for someone who has no intention of moving here and believes that, as a matter of ideal religious practice, not all Jews should move to Israel. I strongly disagree with much of what Maharat Friedman suggested. I also know that her opinions come from an honest place of love for Torah and the Jewish people. As I've suggested before, we need to engage with people with whom we disagree and avoid living in an echo chamber where we're afraid to hear perspectives that might challenge our assumptions. I'm guessing that this episode will produce as much polarized response as last week's. And though what she says or what I say might raise people's blood pressure, hopefully the benefits of agreeing to disagree and hear each other out will far outweigh any negative feelings people have about what each of us suggests. We'll get to our conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. 
The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team, too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Maharat Ruth Belinsky Friedman is a member of the inaugural class of Yeshivat Maharat, which is the first institution to ordain Orthodox women as spiritual leaders and halachic legal authorities. She serves as Maharat, clergy, at Ohev Shalom Synagogue in Washington, D.C., where she performs all traditional rabbinic functions. Maharat Friedman is a member of the Washington Boards of Rabbis and sits on the executive committee of the board of the International Rabbinic Fellowship, of which she is also a member. Maharat Friedman is also a founding member of the Beltway Vad. She and her husband, Yoni, are the proud parents of three children. Maharat Ruth Belinsky Friedman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Maharat Friedman, in some ways, we're having this conversation because the last episode that I released, which was a conversation with Rabbi Mark Wilds of MJE about the question of whether diaspora Jews, I'll put it bluntly, care enough about Israel— that might have been maybe the most polarizing episode I've released in quite a while. Some people told me they thought that what we said was correct, and other people told me that we were completely off base, and weirdly, I'm not even going to say everything in between, because that's not the case. People either agreed or even said we didn't go far enough, and some people said you're absolutely wrong. few people said, well, kind of, at least among the comments that I saw. And I thought that after you wrote a comment on the Facebook group that is part of this podcast, the Orthodox Conundrum Facebook group, you wrote a comment saying that you were among those who disagreed with what we had said in the podcast, that it would be worthwhile for us to have a conversation presenting the other side and the other attitudes. Now, frankly, I thought that because I was speaking to a diaspora rabbi, Rabbi Wilde, who lives in New York, that I was representing the diaspora side. I thought about having somebody from Israel, but I thought that might be too one-sided. This way, we'll have someone from New York, someone from Israel, I'm in Israel, and that will cover both sides. But as it turned out, he kind of agreed with the stance that I was generally advocating. You don't, though. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to read what you wrote on Facebook in a comment, which, by the way, was very respectful, which I appreciate. Let me read what you wrote. I found this episode really upsetting in that it was totally one-sided. For example, I lead an Orthodox congregation of committed, passionate Jews in Washington, D.C., and I don't feel that folks like us were represented at all in this discussion. Do you plan to interview a diaspora Jew who shares alternate views and can shed light on how the American Jewish community viewed the tragedies in Israel in the past two weeks? There is a lot to say on these questions, and I think the folks would appreciate proper representation and not being talked about by others. Thanks. And I think you're absolutely right. Intellectual honesty, as well as trying to just really open up this discussion further, requires that we hear a different perspective. So what do you mean? What do you think was one-sided about the conversation? What seemed to be one-sided is that it seemed that both you and Rabbi Wilds were 
really focused on Israel as being the end all be all of, I guess they let's say contemporary Jewry, um, and agreed to be and seemed to, to be totally in agreement that the ultimate goal of the Jewish people should be to reside in Israel. Okay. Now, I'm asking this. You are a Maharat. You're somebody who understands Torah, obviously. You run a congregation, an Orthodox congregation in Washington, D.C. You know, in fact, let me actually go in this direction. Let me read a comment from somebody else, and I'll tell you what I think about it, and then I'll ask what you, if you agree with that comment or disagree with it, because I think what you just said really leads directly into one of the comments that I saw. Here we go. As Rabbi Wilde and Rabbi Khan said, there are lots of good reasons for individual people to decide to not make Aliyah. The thing is, it's not really great spiritually to see your entire life as being a bidyevid, which means after the fact imperfect, because you can't do any better. Like, I don't think that Israelis think that way about their own lives and say Shemitah, even though life in Israel involves significant bidyevids to get everyone fed. And for an entire community, it's even worse. A community can't really survive, let alone thrive, if people are being told that the community is just for people who can't move to Israel. Yes, Rabbi Khan and Rabbi Wilds don't think we should start packing up American Jewish institutions. But what donor would donate to build a shul or a mikvah or an eruv if there is the ideological subtext that the whole community's existence is really just for people who can't move? How can a community survive if emigration is happening faster than growth and Dafka, the most ideologically committed, are the ones leaving? That was a comment that somebody made. I thought it's a valid comment with which I strongly disagree. I don't think, and I'll say my perspective and then I'll pass it on to you. I don't think that Rabbi Wilder or I, I can speak for myself, is saying that life in America for everyone is living a fundamentally bidi eved life. That's not what we meant. However, I will say that living in America when there's the opportunity to live in Israel, or I'll go even further, living outside of Israel, no matter what, even when you can't move to Israel, it's fundamentally, after the fact, imperfect according to Jewish values. Does that mean that everybody has to make Aliyah? No, the Halakha tells us that's not the case. There are people who don't or maybe even shouldn't make Aliyah, and I certainly advocate that. As I said in the podcast, I'm not somebody who says that everybody has to move to Israel, full stop, and there are no exceptions. However, saying that ideally Jews should live in Israel, I don't think is a controversial position. Even if we say that this person can't, and most of my family doesn't live in Israel. So I, I understand. I love them. I don't say they're Bidyeva Jews. Of course not. But in this particular issue, I don't think you can say it's best not to live in Israel or it's equally good not to live in Israel. I'm not trying to sound arrogant or condescending because I have the fortune in the Zuhu to live in Israel. I really don't mean it like that. I'm speaking from a theoretical perspective. I think that Rashi, Rashi probably couldn't move to Israel. He, he would say, though, but it would be better if I lived in Israel. And I don't think, I don't think what we were saying negates that or contradicts that. What do you say? So I think that it's, it's a really interesting comment that you brought up. First of all, I loved that comment that I saw on, on the Facebook page, and I, I really definitely agree with that also. I think it's a really important point. Um, the comment about rashing, see, that's what I find really interesting, and that's, I think, where a lot of the struggle of understanding what it means to live in Israel today comes from, right? As you said, Rashi knew that living in Israel wasn't really in the cards for him, right? And most, I would venture that most rabbis until recent history, knew that living in Israel wasn't in the cards for them, right? Or they even a visit would require a tremendous truck, and who knows what you find when you get there, and then you have to come back, etc., right? And so for me, frankly, it's a little bit hard to have the conversation about halakhically and, you know, in terms of Jewish idealism over history, what we are supposed to do, because that's been written by people for whom I think that this was probably more of 
a dream um, and frankly even a fantasy than something they could really grasp as a reality. And frankly, I mean, I also really, I really struggle with it. You know, the the Gemara, right? That it's only at Har Sinai the Jews accepted Torah because that forced them to, and it's only an exile, right? It's only the story um, of Esther where they really are able to take it upon them. Now, I want to be clear: I'm not here to to, to to as an act of defense or as an act of advocacy. Simply, like I like to like, always explain. I think things people are always better served when we explain where we're coming from, right? And I do think part of it we have to be honest that certainly Chazal for many centuries saw the fulfillment of the Jewish identity and the spiritual Jewish identity is something that happens in the diaspora and not Israel right and so again I'm not here to say oh therefore diaspora is better than Israel no but there is certainly serious validity to living in the diaspora so what you're saying, in other words, is that when I asked Rabbi Wiles, does diaspora Jewry have independent integrity? In so many words, he effectively said no. And you're saying that's not true. There is integrity to independent diaspora communities, independent of their relationship with Israel. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yes, a thousand percent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you don't mind my asking, so how would you explain that? How would you describe that in terms of, I'm not, this really is not an attack. It's a genuine curiosity question. How do you explain that from a Torah perspective, from a Jewish values perspective, given that there is a state of Israel? And yes, we're all on the same page. There are times people can't or shouldn't move to Israel. There are lots of reasons people don't move to Israel, and I understand them and accept them, if not quite celebrate them, but I totally understand that that's valid. So why would you say, though, that, or when perhaps would I say, would a diaspora community have independent value independent of Israel when there is an opportunity to move to Israel? So look, I there's I think the answer is twofold, right? One is the very important question that you know motivates so much of our funding and our community definitions, which is basic survival. Right? There is a huge risk to having all of your eggs in one basket, right? All Jews in Israel, God forbid something happens, what then? Right. And I really do believe that yeah, our, our Jews, I mean let's be Jews have survived through the millennia because we've been in different places, right? And one community gets destroyed, but then other communities are, thank God, able to thrive, right? So this idea that all Jews should be in one place, to me, first of all, like I genuinely find scary, right? Um, now, I also, I, 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 I mean, people may not like to hear this, but I hesitate to also frame this all as a matter of Jewish survival. There's also a big cultural element. You know, I mean, I, I'm the granddaughter of survivors who thank God we're able to come to the United States and thank God we're able to find a life here. I happen to be very American. I love America. I love American culture. I love Israel too. I love visiting. But, you know, I, I, I think that we're being dishonest if we don't acknowledge that we are strongly affected by the surrounding culture, right? And where we live and the types of people we interact with. And so I know this isn't, that might not be a spiritually inspirational answer, but I think it's important to be honest about that. Is that I, I, I love my, I love my, I love my country here also. And I feel really indebted to it. And I, I, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a scary um, and almost an act of betrayal would be an extreme word, but to, to set that aside, right and say well israel is the ultimate goal i'm enormous enormous to this country right and i identify with that and i take pride in that also i think that's a really important point and i respect that even as i'm coming from a different perspective i really understand that and of course people the idea that someone has to be miserable let's say if someone said i really love america and i don't want to leave 
and you're telling me I have to go to Israel. So you're telling me I have to live my life as an immigrant, perhaps not being that fluent in the language or perhaps not knowing it at all, being in a culture where I don't feel comfortable. To tell someone you are required to do that, I understand. That is a big that's a big question, and that's a big that's a big demand, a big ask of somebody. So I really respect what you just said. I want to ask you about something else I mentioned on the podcast related to that, because I'm curious if you think that I'm wrong or I'm right about this particular point. I'm wondering what your opinion is, Marat Friedman. I mentioned to Rabbi Wilds about a story that I had many years ago when I spoke to a friend of mine, and I asked him, I thought innocently, oh, are you thinking about making Aliyah? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said I was bothered by that, again, not trying to judge people, but the attitude of not, I'm not moving to Israel because I like America, or I'm not moving to Israel because I'm unhappy there, or I'm not moving to Israel because my parents need me here, or anything else. But the idea of moving to Israel isn't even on my radar screen at all. Do you think that that attitude, again, we don't want to judge people, but I'm speaking from a halachic Jewish values perspective, so let's not make it personal about anybody, but do you think that attitude, his attitude, in other words, is quote-unquote a valid Torah attitude, or do you think there's a problem in that as well, to essentially dismiss even the concept of moving to Israel without any reason being necessary? I think it is valid. I mean, I don't say that's a paskin. Um, But this is not psak. This is not psak today. Right, right, Right. yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, but I I, I think, I mean, I certainly, I think that Jews living not in Israel is very, very important. And if you ask me today, if I had my brothers, would I pick up every Jew and move them to Israel? I would say absolutely not. To me, like I said, that's a terrifying um, suggestion. Um, I also wonder, though, and this, I think, gets to the heart of some of the, the comments on Facebook about the episode, is a little bit of that, like, when a parent, thinking they're being asking an innocent question, is asking something that's being perceived by the child as being, you know, Mom, get away, or you know, invasion of the space somehow, right? right. Something that I have a layer of judgment. I, I acknowledge that it might have been received differently than right. I intended, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm speaking more as a theoretical. Imagine that it worked, but for sure, I understand that. Yes, you know, but I just wonder if part of the, the response may have been rooted in like, why do you think I'm eating? You know, because um, there's so much sensitivity below the surface, and uh, which I think is one of the reasons I'm so glad to be here. Then let's talk about what your attitude towards Israel is, which is really the primary topic of that podcast I did last week. In other words, what do you think, Marat Friedman, Jews who are planning to stay in Chutzlaret? And by the way, I am talking about the United States because Rabbi Wilds is in the United States and you're in the United States. But of course, I acknowledge very clearly, as some people correctly pointed out, there are other communities in the diaspora outside of the United States. So I'm only speaking about America because you are currently in D.C., Do you think that for, or what do you think should be the attitude of Jews living in the diaspora towards Israel? What should that relationship be? Is Israel, I realize halakhically it's not true, but is the attitude, this is just the world's biggest Jewish community, which is very, very, very important. Or is there something qualitatively different about communities living in Israel, which was sort of what we were talking about in terms of understanding why things that happen in Israel might have more import on a spiritual level than things that happen in the diaspora, while of course acknowledging that we're not saying that Jewish lives are worth more in one place or another. But Jewish events might be more important if they take place in Israel than elsewhere, good or bad. Right, I'm not totally sure I accept that framework. Um, but, but going back to the to the question, I think, look, I don't pretend to have the answer to that, that question. I think it's an extremely, extremely difficult question. And frankly, I don't know what what like what Israelis or people in Israel see as happening in America. But in the past couple months with the political situation in Israel, 
and the judicial protests, etc. It has been fascinating to watch what has happened because I would say that until let's say roughly two months ago, the establishment, the, the, the approach of being Jewish institution, the Jewish establishment writ large was unconditional support. Right at the end of the day, these are people we are loyal to. This is a country we support. Frankly, a lot of justification for I think politics, politicians, policies that were problematic. Anything that happened in the past two months did not come out of nowhere, right? And honestly, as someone who I, I started to feel like I saw the writing on the wall a while ago, but you can't really say that stuff out loud because people just like, you know, attack. It nuance has really, I think, only entered the broader conversation in the past couple months. Um, and so until then, I think it didn't matter what I said because the the approach was, like I said, writ large, unconditional support. In the past couple of months, frankly, I have no idea how to answer that question. I think my support of Israel, my connection to Israel has actually grown recently, which might seem bizarre, but because we're able to take the issues that have been bubbling beneath the surface and actually speak about them openly, right? And once you can talk about a complicated situation, then I think you're able to find the layers of connection more than when it's either totally black or white. And then if you're not completely in one section, you feel like there's no place for you and you go to the opposite end. Right, so I, I actually feel a stronger connection, a stronger desire to talk about things now. Um, but I don't really, I just don't know if there's one answer to that question because I think that's exactly what people are trying to figure out, right? If someone, let's say, is is really abhors the politics of some of the people who are now in charge, but this is a country that they love, a country they've been supporting their whole life, a people they've been supporting their whole life, what do you do with that? I don't think people here know the answer yet. So you're saying that our discussion about whether or not people outside of Israel should affect policy in Israel is you have a feeling that it's, it's not black or white the way we presented it or the way I'll say Rabbi Wilds was quite clear when I asked him. He says he thinks and I agree with him. I'll be open about that. But he said that people who do not live in Israel can express their opinion and they can even express it loudly. But they shouldn't try to affect policy, such as lobbying congressmen or congresswomen to do something to cause or force Israel to move into a certain perspective. Part of the reason that I agree with him is, and again, I mentioned that I have some ambivalence because I don't want to pretend that Jews outside of Israel don't have a connection to Israel. That's my whole point. They do have a connection. Every person who is a member of Kali Israel has a chalak, a section, a part of Eretz Israel, both practically and in their souls. So I don't want to say, you can't tell us what you think. And some people misunderstood. I don't think either of us were trying to say that people shouldn't express their opinion. I think they should. And I want them to express their opinion. That means they care. The question then changes a little bit, though, when they start advocating policies that don't necessarily affect them on a life or death level. If somebody, for example, were to go and say, I believe that Israel should not give back an inch of land. And this person tries to affect policy by demonstrating publicly and influencing the American government to influence Israel in a certain direction or coming to Israel and trying to speak to Knesset members in such a way that you actually would have an effect, at least theoretically. I don't know if it would, but in principle, to try and do it. And then let's say Israel, because of that pressure in part, does not give away land. And now let's say that chas v'shalom is a bad idea and people die as a result. The person paying the price is the Jew in Yerushalayim or Tel Aviv, not the Jew who lobbied, who lives in New York, for example. So I have a hard time with that. What's your opinion about that? I totally see that. And I do think that if I were Israeli and living in Israel and I saw people on either end of the political spectrum getting up and advocating those, um, like, you know, I, I, yeah, I would definitely feel upset and territorial about that 100%. 
that is different to me though than the i think it was it was referred to in the podcast as like the cheerleader stance right um than just saying yes whatever israel does is should be supported it is you know yes like yeah you know, we are here to support israel no matter what there is and i know some people made that argument there is the oddity that like these are our tax dollars right going to support israel the u.s sends israel tons of money you know and so and i do think that has some validity where i am more concerned or interested and this i think also i've been thinking so much about this the past few days and i listened to the episode a couple of times is just the divergence in the identity of let's say the let's speak about like what you you would call the modern orthodox communities um in us and israel the divergence in how people think just about us as a community and our relationship with other communities in the United States, of course, modern Orthodox Jews, I frankly often identify more as open Orthodox, which is another podcast, but you know, we we're we are people who we live in communities of all sorts of folks, right? I live in Washington, DC. We are communities that are engaged with the world around us. And I think have also gotten more involved in recent years, regardless of the politics, Republican, Democrat, whatever, of various modern Orthodox communities in the United States, you know, no one can deny what happened with George Floyd in May, and that that in May of 2020, excuse me, and that that didn't affect how we think about ourselves as people, right? Even again, even if it's someone who doesn't support Black Lives Matter as a movement, right? Someone who, who thought, whatever you want to think, our approaches, I think, shifted at least somewhat into more engagement, more awareness of racial injustices and all of those things, right? And inevitably, along with that, we become more aware of all of the people around us, right? Not just ourselves, but really the way that we play a role in a broader community and the quality of life and the basic respect of life that other members of our city, our, our neighbors are experiencing. What I'm seeing in Israel, and again, I see this not as judgmentally, um, my, actually my my whole attitude for many ladies of judgmental of Israel and now that things are really come to the fore and actually really just in the place of trying to understand which is why actually I planned a shul event with Rabbi Benny Lau last month to do a zoom just to try to help us understand right I want to understand we're religious Jews and Israel's religious Jews what's going on what I'm observing and I'm very curious for your thoughts on this it is a growing sense of of I would say I guess nationalism or communal cohesion at the expense or at, yeah let's say expense but maybe I, don't, I, I am so hesitant to say something that someone will perceive as like completely radical and then shut down the conversation at the expense though of the regard for other communities in other words something that's more about self-preservation right self-survival and puts the self at the fore in the primary concern of any conversation right so to say to so for when i someone like me hears support israel no matter what cheerleader or israel no matter what I say, but wait a minute, you know, this is a country that just elected some parties with some seriously, pro- I mean, in my opinion, problematic people who say some very horrific things about, you know, Palestinians, et cetera. Like, that's the exact opposite trend that America is going on. And so that, I think, is where a lot of, it's hard for me to, like, answer those questions because I just see us as being in different places. Because you said you were curious to hear what I think about that, on that particular point mm-hmm. about the idea of communal self-preservation at the expense of other communities in Israel, I am of one mind with you. I think it's a real problem. In fact, 
my opinion about this. I don't usually talk too much politics on this podcast, but I'll say that I feel that uh, raging nationalism that means marching through neighborhoods to prove that you can is a sign of immature nationalism. It's like high schoolers who grow up and say what they're going to do when they reach power. I think it's an immaturity. I think that a mature nationalism, a mature, secure sense of Zionism recognizes that there are some communities that are not Jewish, that are with us, whether we like it or not, and they're not leaving, whether they like it or not. No one is leaving, and therefore we have to learn how to live together. And as a result of that, marching through them, loudly announcing that we're in charge and you're not, is an infantile way of dealing with it, rather than trying to find ways to welcome them in, while, of course, saying Jews are going to be the majority here, and this is a Jewish state, and that does not mean you have to be second-class citizens. That's why, personally... A lot of people don't agree with me about this particular point, but I was very happy when the previous government, headed by Naftali Bennett, brought in an Islamist party, as long as that Islamist party was not dealing with the Palestinian issue, which is something they essentially agreed not to do. Because one of the reasons I assume, I'm not a politician, but one of the reasons that I assume that the Arab communities are so obviously underserved financially and in other ways in Israel is in large part because they don't have representation in the government, even though they do have representation in the Knesset. And given the nature of how the Knesset works, if your party is in, in the government, you have a greater ability, a far greater ability, to channel money towards causes that matter. By having an Islamist or an Arab party at all in the government, those communities, Nazareth, for example, that are part of non-West Bank Israel, in other words, communities that are in no way in dispute in any normal conversation, communities that will always be part of the state of Israel, no matter what happens in the future, and that are going to remain part of Israel, and those citizens are Israeli citizens, should be able to get the same services at the same level as all of the cities that are Jewish, like Beit Shemesh, where I live in Jerusalem. I'd like to now move the conversation in a slightly different direction, because something else which you said, which is really the crux of the podcast, was that... You'd like to speak to somebody, and that's why I'm speaking to you today, Marat Friedman, who can shed light on how the American Jewish community viewed the tragedies in Israel in the past two weeks. So could you shed some light on that particular issue? Yes. So I assume we are speaking specifically with the horrific murder of the members of the D family. Is that? That's the one that's foremost in my mind, but there also was the murder of Italian tourists. I think seven people were injured. And also the fact that there were bombs that fell on Israel, missiles or or rockets were sent from Lebanon as well as Gaza on, I think, the night of the Seder. So, But yes, Yes. the D family is certainly the one that (laughs) is closest to me geographically. I'm right here uh, about half an hour from Efrat. So yes. Okay, beautiful. So... So let me just, I've just been thinking about this so much. I'll run through what Nantip was like. Now, of course, I mean, people mention this, but it's worth just repeating. For Jews in America, the diaspora, it was a three-day young, right? So starting Wednesday night to mostly Shabbos, no technology. Friday afternoon, I'm walking to Mincha at my shul, and I ran into um, a, a member of my shul who's the head of the security committee. And because security is so serious in American shuls, um, he had he had gotten a very brief notification. They get let's if if something serious is going on that we need to be aware of, they'll get a brief notification, and that's all you know. They'll checking, etc. And, and he says to me, "Things are really bad in Israel right now." He said there are rockets going down in the north, and two women were killed. You know, in another car shooting, and there was a ramming in Tel Aviv, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And it stuck with me all night. Now, what was I thinking? I was thinking. My sister, who lives in Yerushalayim, is up north with her husband and in-laws. My closest friends here in D.C. are also up north with their friends right now. And 
that that kind of a shooting i mean it, it, it the horror is just unimaginable and i brought it to, i didn't see it with shul because i frankly really didn't know the details i came home i told my husband right away that next morning i got up in shul i didn't know what i should say etc mostly shabbos you know, we turn on finally technology and we see the details of what happened thank god my sister has sent a message to our family whatsapp because she's the only one in israel saying don't worry i'm fine our friend spent um you know was part of baby sack in the bomb shelter and thank god they're fine and then it's like you see what happened with these two women from the d family and it it's just i mean it was horrible and at that point lucy was in the hospital now i'm not this to be self like gratuitous whatever i really felt like this i it was clawing i mean it's just it's this it's just the loss the fact that the other half of the family's in the car i mean just every to be there it's just like horrible in every note now where i then get stuck is by that time israel has known about it i believe they'd already buried maya and rena at that point right where they were buried or shabbos is that or I were, no, they were buried, I believe, on Sunday. And the message was it Sunday? Okay. And the messaging, the, like the Facebook posts, let's say for example, that are coming up are making me go, "Whoa!" Um, why do I say that? I say that because what I noticed is a few American friends. The posts are here. These two like beautiful young women, absolutely true, were murdered. Absolutely true referred to the shooters i think one of the posts said like by these beasts referred to the shooters as beasts b-e-a-s-t-f right now yeah if god forbid someone killed members of my family i'd be thinking that way too however i don't i mean i personally like don't think it's responsible as a religious leader in this country or anywhere to share posts in which the shooters are referred to as beasts then another post was saying, you know, another thread of thought was these people were killed solely because they were Jewish. That's it. This is anti-Semitism. Nothing else. I don't think it negates the tragedy of what happened. And again, something that truly has been clawing at me to say, not really true, right? I mean, or at least I don't feel that shit. Anti-Semitism. No, this, this is a this is a serious political situation with very serious ramifications. And big history, whatever side you fall on, this isn't anti-Semitism. And I just, I, so personally, someone like me feels stuck, right? I feel really stuck at that point because I don't feel like I can just click share on a post that mentions either of those things because I don't think the people who shot them were beasts. They were people. I don't think it's responsible of me to refer to them as beasts. And I also don't think it's responsible or true to say that this is an issue of anti-Semitism. So now the only way for me to speak publicly about it is to counter that narrative, at which point I'm using these four women and this poor family as a political pawn, and that's like totally not something I'm interested in doing. That's not fair to them either. And so I end up feeling kind of paralyzed and I don't know what to say. And actually, I mean, I got up in shul multiple times and went and I said to myself, am I gonna mention the D family? And just no words came out of my mouth because I didn't know what to say. And going back to your earlier comment also, what was then interesting to me then to see about when Lucy died shortly thereafter, which I mean, just devastating. Like, I don't, I, I want to emphasize that my colleagues, certainly we're been colleagues and I'm nice, were devastated to hear a lot. What the scenes of the funeral procession, because it was raining, was everyone came out and held those really flats, right? And so going back to the earlier comment also about nationalism, what this says to me is that these murders are tied up in 
a much bigger identity question that is going on and one in which it is accelerating this mer- this nationalism Jew- pri- I won't say Jewish supremacist but Jewish primary narrative that is not something I feel like I can responsibly get on board with and I don't identify with right so I carry so I say that personally because I feel like as a community leader I need to be actually careful about what I say but also as a person this is not a narrative I identify with and so I then am left feeling and I know I'm not the only one like I have no idea how to respond to this and so I'm just not going to say anything Okay, I'll be frank with you over here, Marat Freeman. This is where you and I are sort of departing ways, and I disagree with you pretty strongly about some of those ideas, although I respect, of course, the opportunity to discuss them with you. In terms of one question, I'll just put it like this. What's the problem with calling the murderers beasts? What I mean by that is I don't believe that was a racial claim. I don't believe that was a claim about a nationalist issue. I think it was a claim about the nature of people who would do such a thing. And even if somebody sympathizes with the Palestinian narrative and the Palestinian cause— killing three people on a road who are driving there. I don't know how else to refer to people who do that except as inhuman in their in the evil of what they did. Murder is murder, and when it's perpetrated against Jews in the land of Israel, anywhere in the land of Israel, regardless of whether or not you think the Jews should be there long term, it's an evil act, and the people who do it are acting like beasts. Now let me take it a little bit further. Should a Jew murder an innocent Palestinian, that Jew is also acting like a beast. It doesn't matter whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew. Murder is murder. I'm not somebody who says, by the way, that all the right is always on the Israeli side and all the wrong is always on the Palestinian side. I don't think that's true. In a case like the D family, all the right is with us and all the wrongs with them. I'll say that, and I really believe that. So why don't you agree that it's right to call them beasts unless you think it's just a semantic issue? What's the problem that you have with that? Right. So I think that the issue with, to me with that is that, like, if someone said evil, like, I wouldn't have a problem with that. And that, because then you'd say, well, maybe they're not evil. It's an oppression. Da, da, da. Fine. That, that to me is like, then you can, like, hammer out the details. But there's something about the dehumanization of a people that is already dehumanized in many ways that to me just feels very, very dangerous, right? Like, I, I would hope that the narrative in Israel, despite I don't pretend to have a clue what to do or, and I know I live in America, but we're, we're, things have not been good, right? We have not really been moving. I don't think they're moving in the right direction in terms of, you know, as you said, like they're moving in the right direction if you're a Jewish supremacist. If you're not, I don't really think things are moving quite in the right direction right now. And so to say beast to me seems um, very problematic when speaking about human beings, because I think that it, further is the dehumanization and once someone is dehumanized it becomes easier to do cruel things to them because you don't see them as your equal right i would respond to that that we're not dehumanizing or those who call them beasts are not dehumanizing people they're dehumanizing a murderer or murderers and those who celebrate them i think it's a very different situation that's not comparable I also disagree with what you said about the Israeli flag. I understand why it can look jingoistic or it can look nationalist in a way which is unhealthy. In my mind, despite the fact that I'm not a fan, as I mentioned earlier, of over-the-top nationalism that dehumanizes and rejects the other, I think we should bring them in, etc. I also think, though, as a passionate Zionist, that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. How we deal with the fact that there is a hostile population who also believe that this land belongs to them is a very, very important question. And I'm not even negating their narrative. I'm not. 
But I'm also not going to negate our narrative, a narrative in which I believe that Jews do have the right to live in the land of Israel, that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. And the fact that people took out Israeli flags to counter the the attempt of what the murder is all about, which is to delegitimize our place in Israel, this has nothing to do with whether or not Israel should allow a Palestinian state to be created. That's a really different question. But whether or not Israel allows a Palestinian state to be created is independent of the question of whether Jews should be allowed to live in Israel. So proudly displaying Israeli flags as a means of making the point that we have a right to live in Israel and the state of Israel is a Jewish state and should always remain that. And we're not going to accept anyone rejecting our place here. To me, that is a very different expression of nationalism. It's a healthy expression of nationalism, which has nothing to do with the unhealthy expression of nationalism that's represented by a guy taking his gun and marching through an Arab neighborhood just to show that he can. So, so here's so here's one of the things so interesting about that, and I, I I'm totally very willing and happy to stand completely corrected. And so, my question for you, back to clarify, is: so when you say Israel, do you mean the state as it currently is? Do you mean sort of you know Judea and Samaria? Like, do you what, it's? I guess because I think, and I think one other thing I've been thinking about is that because the religious community has been associated with a more right word and in some cases extreme politics is that is that a statement of Am Yisrael Chai you know as like I was raised singing in my consumption day school in the high school right or is it like Am Yisrael is here and we're taking over and we're out right because those are attitudes you also see emerging from the orthodox right. these days and so I will I'm, I'm asking an honest question like what did you see that as? Well, when I'm saying it, I'm saying something in the middle. I think there's a, a large area between those two extremes. I'd say that Am Yisrael Chai, as an idea, of course, is true. That Jews have the right to kick Arabs out of Israel, I do not accept. I think it's clear that this is an issue that needs to be approached with a good deal of nuance because it's very complicated. How to relate to the Shtachim, to Yudav Vashomron, the West Bank, is a complicated question because there's the religious level where I'll say on a purely theoretical religious level— the land of Israel is the land of Israel and it belongs to us. Whether or not that means that Palestinians have no place here shouldn't be affected by that. That's that's like actually a different question because it's a reality that's here. In fact, a good friend of mine once presented it, I think, with a very simple but wise metaphor. He said, imagine that someone steals your house and you always held the key to that house knowing that that's your house. And many, many generations pass. The original person who stole it sold it to somebody who sold it to somebody who sold it to somebody. The inhabitants there now did nothing wrong. They are completely valid residents. That does not negate your right to be there. That means that there are two narratives that can both be true and they can conflict, but that doesn't mean that they can coexist or that they shouldn't coexist. It's very difficult because they're both they're both justified. No one's really wrong here in terms of their theoretical narrative. At least you can say such a thing. I don't want to get into politics now. We can say, no, this part's wrong, that part's wrong, but I... Bigadol, as a general thing, I can say that I don't think that we should tell the Palestinians you're never going to have a Palestinian state. I think that in order to have a Jewish state of Israel on a political level, eventually there's going to be a need to separate and create a Palestinian entity, whether that's a full state or not. It's a security question, not relevant for now, because I think otherwise, even purely from a Jewish state perspective, we're taking a risk of having a non-majority Jewish state or close to non-majority state, which will either mean the end of the Jewish state or the end of democracy, neither of which I'm willing to countenance. So I believe that there can and should eventually be a Palestinian something. I also know that right now, the chances of that happening practically are very low 
in the immediate future. I'm talking about a more distant future. I don't think that practically for many reasons it's going to happen in the next five or 10 years, to say the least. I don't think it's practical. And the reasons that it's impractical, there's blame to go around on both sides. Although, in my opinion, there is far more blame on the Palestinian side than there is on the Israeli side. So I'm saying on a theoretical level, do the Palestinians belong on the West Bank? Kind of, yes. I mean, yes, they do. Do Jews belong there? Yes, they do. So that's, I guess I'm giving, I hope, a nuanced answer to your question. I believe that Jews have the theoretical right to live everywhere in Israel. Is it smart to exercise that right everywhere in the West Bank? No, I think it's very foolish. Is it smart to exercise that right in some places in the West Bank? Yes, I think it's imperative. Is that a good, a fair response? Yeah, absolutely. Is it okay if I ask you a follow-up question to that? Please, of course. Remembering that, obviously, you know, our communities, whether we like it or not, are separated, right? Israel and the United States. What happens in, I've seen different spellings and pronunciations, Hawara, Hawara, with the, you know, I've seen people call the pogrom. What happened there? I mean, for me, from perspective, horrifying, terrifying, shocking, inexcusable, right? I mean, you want to talk about the, the shooters as beasts. I can't say that and not say something similar about the people who perpetrated this. I mean, and, and I'm now... Again, I'm in the state. I think I know a decent amount about the Israeli community. And I certainly, I ask my sister all the time, like, you know, so who, who's saying what exactly? Like, now we see that someone like me goes, oh, and I'm sure many people in Israel also go, whoa, like what is happening in this country? Right. And to the people who kind of look like me and my, you know, I mean, my son walks with his, around with his sits out, you know, I mean, like, what? Um, I'm sure, judging from your facial expressions, that that is not something you identify with at all, right? But but as a, someone who's, you know, an outsider in that respect, you see that happen. And then sort of the more nationalist stuff that we were talking about earlier, coming out a few weeks later, tell me about, tell me what nuance I'm missing. Not to say that, God forbid, everyone supported what those people, where we want to call them, I don't know, the day in Hawara, but are these like, are these at all converging? Are they all part of the same phenomenon or is this two totally separate things? Yeah, I'm not really sure, but I will say that certainly when it came, I put up a video after what happened, who are happened. It was on the Facebook page if people want to see it. I think it's obvious, but I basically said, on the one hand, it is absolutely inexcusable what happened in Huara. It is also absolutely inexcusable for people to be murdered, for the Jews to be murdered, for those brothers to be murdered in their car. These two things can coexist and there's no reason why and this was the problem. People were saying, if you care so much about what happened, who are, how come you don't care about the Jews who were killed or vice versa? You can say, I condemn both. Jews should never be murdered, full stop. And that's horrible and it's tragic and we should tear Korea. The fact that Jews paraded through Huara and burned cars, and I don't know exactly what happened because it isn't exactly so clear. Maybe I just don't know. I've heard different things. Some people say that's not what happened. Some people say that's exactly what happened. I don't know. Some people say it was a couple kids and it turned into this massive thing. Other people say, no, it was a lot more than that. So let's leave the facts aside because I don't know what they are. But assuming that it was something that happened, and I'm sure something happened, completely unacceptable, totally wrong. Those people should be arrested and tried for exactly what they did. Those two things can coexist. And I think, unfortunately, the nature of politics in Israel is such that part of it is that politics kind of leads to this. And the same thing is true 
at times in the United States. It leads to extreme positions at times, at least, for example, in the Democratic and Republican primaries, people try to go to the edges and then perhaps come back to the middle later on for the general election. That's what's often said. In Israel, much of the same, although I'm not sure they often come back because their party is, by definition, an interest group, unless it's one of the national parties. And even the national parties have in some ways become interest groups. Because of that, the religious Zionist party as such represents an extreme part of the religious Zionist world. The Dati-Lumi world used to be represented by the Maftal, which itself was a right-wing party, which was not entirely represented. I didn't vote for the Maftal for quite a while. In the 1967 war, Michael Oren wrote a book called Six Days of War about this. In the 1967 Six-Day War, after Jordan started shelling West Jerusalem and the government, the labor government, was trying to decide whether or not it should attack Jordan, because it was already fighting on two fronts, Syria and Egypt, the party that, or at least one of the parties that said, do not go in, was the National Religious Party. Because until 1967, and certainly 1973, the National Religious Party was kind of a left-wing party. It represented the Rav Reinists and perhaps Rav Salvechik view of how a religious party should behave and should what it should represent. After 1973 in particular, Gush Emunim kind of took over the party and it moved to the right. Ultimately, that same party, the Maftal, morphed into Bayit Yehudi and right now is effectively defunct. The religious Zionist party, Sionuta Datit, is a completely different party which emerged from the merging of several more right-wing parties, and it's even further to the right than even the right-wing version of Maftal was. I don't think it's representative, but they are what's out there, and unfortunately, when I talk to people, I don't think that people are, that they are representative of the religious Zionist community. They're representative of a segment of it, and certainly not my segment. And it's unfortunate that they've co-opted the name because it makes them seem to have more power in that group than they actually do, I think, on the street. Of course, I don't really know. I can only speak of my own experience, and I don't know how representative that experience is. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, then let me ask you a question then, Marat Friedman. What is religious Zionism for people who live outside of Israel? Is there such a thing? Is it something that should be built or is it something that should be downgraded? And let's not talk about the political meaning of it. Let's get away from the party and talk about the idea of religious Zionism as it has always meant from, let's say, 1948 and onward before it became associated with a specific political party. So I actually, I would ask, can, can we just define it? So we make sure we're talking about this. Well, that's part of what I wanted to ask you. That's part of what I wanted to ask you. Okay. (laughs) Is is how would you define the phrase religious Zionism? I mean, I guess I would say people who believe that we should be building up the land of Israel and believe that there is a religious component to the identity of living there. Okay. What's your feeling about that? Are you supportive of that? Yeah. Okay. I want to read you another email, but this email comes from the opposite perspective. It was an email that said that Rabbi Wiles and I didn't go far enough. And I'm curious to get your feedback on this. The person wrote, you, both of you, were far, far too lenient on Orthodox Jewish communities, especially in the USA. I am afraid that in their comfort and self-satisfaction, perhaps the worst spiritual vice of all Jews, whatever their level of commitment, the Orthodox Jews of North America have written Israel out of the story. Yes, Israel may be a quote-unquote theme park to visit on Pesach and Sukkot, But the idea of building a society in the land of Israel has been written out of their religious terms of reference. Orthodox Jews do community, they do not do society. And I believe he means that in a pejorative way. So the idea of building a just society in the land of Israel that will be a beacon of light to Jews and non-Jews around the world is simply not a consideration, even though at least in my mind, that is the ultimate purpose of the entire Torah. If I understand what this writer is saying... He's saying that not only did we not go far enough in saying that 
diaspora Jews or American Jews don't care enough about Israel. They look at Israel as they've kind of made it irrelevant to their Judaism. They've made it something which is a place you can visit. But the idea of what Israel is supposed to represent in the writer's view, which is not to build a community, there are many communities, but to build a society which can represent Orla Goyim, he said that simply doesn't exist. And as such, they're taking a huge piece of Judaism and ignoring it. What's your feeling about that? Do you think he's right in some way? Because even though you obviously disagree on the other end, you can agree that he's right as well about this in terms of attitude of American Jews. So I look, I, I would say, and I should also add, there are plenty of, I think, Orthodox, very right-wing communities in the United States that would have absolutely no issue with anything that, you know, some of those current Israeli politicians would say and are as right-wing as possible. Um, you know, I, I'm from Chicago. I've spent 10 years in New York and now 10 years in D.C. So I feel like those are the communities that kind of, well, for example, Florida, no idea. You know, and I don't want to pretend to speak for anyone in, in those places. I think, and I also picked up on this from from the from the episode. I, I think, I wonder if part of what's happening here is that there is an expectation from the Israeli side, whatever that means, that Israel is an idea. It is a thing. Is it an amazing thing? It is a religious, you know, everything, right? And it's incomprehensible that American Jews would not be a hundred thousand percent on board with every single component of that. For American Jews, I mean, or at least I'll say for myself, and I think, you know, my friends and my congregants, etc., love that idea of Israel. But I don't know if. I know how to separate that from the current political climate that's going on. Now, that doesn't mean I once you know certain people were elected or certain reforms were proposed. I said, "Ah, forget it. I'm not going anymore." No, the Huffa would like want to buy me a plane ticket. I'm you know I'm there. But if there's a perception that support is somehow waning, I would venture to say that at least from some of us, it's because. It's very difficult to maintain, ramp up support of something that is actively going in the opposite from direction from everything that you are fighting for in, for in the United States. Does that make sense? I'm trying not to say anything. Inten- I'm not trying to be intentionally inflammatory. I'm just trying to like explain. I think it makes a lot of sense. I wonder if there's a difference between, I mean, you're sort of straddling that line, which I, I understand, that line between supporting the government, supporting policies versus supporting the concept right. of and saying, when does the government become the concept of? Meaning to say there's a difference between the state as such and the government that's currently running it, just as there's a difference between the Biden administration and the United States as such. Obviously, that's not always so simple to navigate. Let's say, something that would never happen, that Israel became a theocratic Iran-like state that was involved in terror. Who knows? That's not going to happen. But let's just say that that were to happen. I understand it would be extremely difficult to separate supporting the state of Israel from the government. But that's not the case now, and that's never going to be the case, I certainly hope and believe. So I understand that's a difficult line, but I guess you have to, or any of us have to sometimes say, I don't agree with this particular government, but at the same time, the state of Israel as such is not the same thing as this government, and there will be elections in three and a half years or sooner, and things will change, and things will go in a different direction. This is not the same thing as saying you have to be a cheerleader, but there's a difference between being a cheerleader for the government or for policy versus saying Israel as 
a Jewish state should exist, and I'm not going to let my support for that wane at all, no matter what the government says, unless it becomes an evil government, which, again, I'm not saying is going to happen. I would imagine most leaders of JCRCs here and federations, et cetera, are saying that to funders, to local community partners, I would imagine that that is the narrative, right? And that's something I agree with also. But look, like, you know, I hate I hate talking about like to play the anti-Semitism card and all of that just because, but yeah, and there, there's literally a frumpy judgment in the Washington Post today about a sheriff in Florida somewhere in a very right-wing community who's dealing with this like group of neo-Nazi, anti-Jew people and he's trying to figure out how to deal with them because he's ignoring them, doesn't seem to be helping. Part of it is he's working with the Jewish community there. Is that and, the like, group in Orlando? Was, is it, it's not some random place I've never heard of. Okay. It's, I just posted on Facebook because that was a fascinating article and to see like this guy trying to figure out how on earth do you deal with this so that someone doesn't listen to them and then become the next mass shooter. Um, you know, I do work in DC about anti-Semitism, anti there's a basic, you know, after Tree of Life, we we opened up our shoulder doors that Sunday, you know, to a little vigil and the mayor came so many other than a, a, a largely black and Jewish neighborhood, so many of our black neighbors came. It was beautiful. And it was amazing to feel that support. I feel like we we had any local issue here where the water company wanted to shut off the water for eight hours, Erez Pesach. And I had my black neighbors supporting us saying, that's crazy. Like, we're going to call DC Water. We're going to figure it out, et cetera. If I want to expect that level of love and support from my neighbors, I have to be really, you know, add ones to myself and how I talk about, you know, Israel, et cetera. I mean, we have to be, you know, I have to be careful. Um, and, you know, we don't live in, we don't, I'm, saying, I'm not saying Israeli Jews do, but we, we don't live in vacuums here, right? We have to be very, very, you know, in and some of are very precarious. I devote a lot of my professional energy to maintaining good relationships with my local neighbors, right? The black community also, but also neighbors in general, making sure I'm working with non-Jewish things as well, right? There's a lot of active effort that goes into that. And if I'm then, you know, sharing something on Facebook that's like, I support Israel no matter what. Why on earth would someone want to work with me? You know, I mean, it's just, it just, I feel like I have to give what I am asking for at the same time. And that is also where I just got very frustrated in hearing parts of that episode. It's like, you're asking me to do something that responsibly I can't do, you know? I understand. Well, let me take it a step further. Would you agree with the idea that anti-Zionism defined as Israel shouldn't exist is also a form of anti-Semitism. I agree with that myself. Do you agree with that? I would think so, but just because I think it's such a ludicrous idea. Um, I mean, what, you're going to just take apart a country that's existed for 75 years? And like, I, I just, it's just it's so absurd to me um, that, yeah, I, I think so. I've not been very impressed by the extreme left in that sense. And I happen to consider myself a lefty in Israel, whatever that means nowadays, you know, but that to me is just like, it just isn't even logical. Let me read you another comment that somebody made, and I'd like to hear your feedback on this, Marat Friedman. It said, how about a different question? Do Israelis care about diaspora Jews enough? Taking what I use as the title and flipping it about diaspora Jews. The answer is self-evident. They know very little about them and generally treat them with complete contempt, except when condescendingly urging them to make Aliyah. I cannot begin to tell you how many interactions I've had with Israelis where their contempt for diaspora Jewry, philosophically and practically, has simply made my blood boil. 
Add into that various government legislative initiatives and pronouncements by ministers in previous governments, which show a complete lack of understanding and care for diaspora Jewry, and the result is a complete turnoff for this diaspora Jew. Frankly, if you want to fix the relationship between Israel and the diaspora, start with the Israelis. You're coming from a diaspora perspective, obviously, because that's where you live, and you can't say how people like me feel, but do you think this is a common feeling that Israelis are extremely condescending towards Americans and don't care what happens in Chutzla or it's America or elsewhere? I never had any reason to feel that way. I mean, again, going back to like the black, let's like get over these black and white narratives because they're not helpful and that's exactly why I'm here, right? Right, So exactly. like, I don't pretend to know what your neighbors think about the United States. I have no idea, right? I mean, I look, I do remember as so I spent my spring semester of 2006 at Hebrew U. And she was just like log but on or something. They brought us to some place. Like of all the American students who were in Israelite year, it was still one of the first years after the Intifada where things were like really ramping up again. And I just remember some Israeli official getting up and saying, You should all move here. It's so easy. We're all looking at each other like, What? Um, you know, so is that attitude obnoxious? Yes. You know, is it offensive? Yes. Do I think every Israeli shares that? No. I mean, it, it, and I, you know, I, I just also feel like I, I truly, I've got two sons and a dollar. I cannot fathom sending my son into the army in 10 years. I truly cannot fathom that. I'm not going to pretend to know what that feels like for you. You know, but like, I also want to be afforded the same level of respect and consideration that I am trying to afford the Israeli community, right? So again, like, if you know, if people just think we're like coasting on through with our minivans of Costco, and I love my minivan and I love Costco so much, Right. But I'm also, you know, dealing with when, you know, a, a, a council member a few years ago made a very a completely unintentionally anti-Semitic comment and like lots of, you know, things afterwards and to, to work with that and, you know, meetings and relationships that have to be built. You know, it, someone could say, well, that's all worthless if you just move to Israel. But I also don't like, as we said earlier, I don't actually think that's like, I think I'm hoping the survival of the Jewish people just as much as someone living in Israel. Right. Because neither of us knows, God forbid, the next thing that's going to happen to us, right? And I think that the work of them by do is very important, even if someone in Israel, someone's where else, me not. So I would just hope someone would try to understand me where I'm coming from as much as I'm trying to do the same. This has been really interesting. And I really appreciate your being willing to be honest with me and forthright and open and vulnerable. I appreciate that. And I hope I'm doing the same. I want to ask you one final question. In terms of encapsulating a certain perspective. Let's say, for example, you had an important congregant. When I say important congregant, somebody who really adds a lot to your community. And that congregant were to tell you, I think I'd like to move to Israel. What do you think? Would you discourage that congregant from moving because it's going to hurt your community, assuming that that would happen? Or would you say, no, moving to Israel is still a wonderful thing, and therefore I encourage it and support that? What would your attitude be? Would you try to convince that person, if that person were asking you, don't go? Or would you say, yes, you should go? Oh, I would say, yeah, of course, if there's something you want to do, absolutely. I mean, we had someone move to Israel a couple of years ago under circumstances, you know, that were challenging, but that person made it work. That's great. I think that's wonderful. I would also just want to make sure that they are, they have resources there. You know, they have connections there because um, I know it's not easy to, to show up as an outsider on your own. Um, but no, of course, if one was there, that's beautiful. It's amazing. Okay. Very good. Okay. Well, Marat Ruth Blinsky Friedman. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad that we were able to look at a different perspective from the one that Rabbi Wilds and I presented last week. And I'm sure a lot of people will comment on this one too. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.